Welcome to the MedEvidence Podcast, hosted by Dr. Michael Corrin and Michelle McCormick. MedEvidence, where we help you navigate the real truth behind medical research with both a clinical and research perspective. In this podcast, we'll have discussions with physicians that have extensive experience in patient care and research. How do you know that something works? In medicine, we conduct clinical trials to see if things work. Now, let's get the truth behind the data. Welcome to MedEvidence, powered by Encore Research Group. Go to EncoreDocs.com. My name is Dr. Michael Corrin, and I'm the moderator this morning for this version of the MedEvidence Hour. And I'm very, very privileged to have uh, Adrian Rota with me, who's a nurse practitioner here in Northeast Florida, who's somebody that I've known for a while because uh, we work with her dad, and her dad is an ophthalmologist, mom's a nurse, and they've been involved with research for many, many years. So we've been you're talking about your past and some of your insights as somebody that's exposed to clinical research. And during our last segment, we were talking about the value proposition for patients to be involved in clinical research, which is really fascinating to me. And it's such an important part of being effective as a clinical researcher is to be able to understand the value proposition of the patients that you touch. Mm-hmm. So I want to dig into that a little bit with you. Okay. You good with that? Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. So um, in general, when you think about the value propositions for patients, it, it comes down to sort of a series of things, mm-hmm. maybe five or so. So some people do it for resources. And you mm-hmm. mentioned in the last segment that people get paid for what they do. So mm-hmm. if it's um, a flu shot and you're going to get a flu shot anyhow, why not get paid a few hundred bucks for it? Correct. So that's a, that's one thing. Sometimes that resource is, resource is a drug you can't get easily. You know, a lot of the drugs out there are really, really expensive. And in clinical research, typically these drugs are provided at no cost. Mm-hmm. So that's sometimes one of those resource, resource things. Some people do it to get relief from suffering. There may be conditions that don't have any other cures. And by getting involved in the clinical research study, you may not be guaranteed that, but there's a possibility that you'll get relief from whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That could be relief from a cancer. It could be a, a, a cholesterol problem like lipoprotein little a that has no other solutions. It could be a form of arthritis that doesn't really have any good solutions. And mm-hmm. instead of just taking a narcotic, we may have a drug that deals with the underlying condition. So you get relief from suffering mm-hmm. uh, through those type of, of studies and those type of opportunities. Then the other thing that drives people is legacy. So we all have this um, wish to make sure that our life story and our experiences are somehow used by the next generation for their benefit. We Mm -hmm. want to pass it along. And there's no better way to pass along your life story or your involvement in the healthcare world than doing research because just the nature of research requires us to record all the information and then share it with everybody else. Mm -hmm. So you are, you as a patient are participating with lots of other people around the world. And this story gets told to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. And then of course, on a personal level, if you have a genetic condition that doesn't have a good cure and you're part of the cure, then you're directly passing something on to your relatives. So that, that can be really, really pretty cool. Yeah. Then, you know, there's also just a a neat socialization element of clinical research. So people, you know, you mentioned this in the first segment that people like to chat, that, that in the clinical setting, if you're in the ICU, you, you know, you just got to do your work and you move on. You don't really have a whole lot of time to chat, but in research, we actually have to record all these measurements that are more spontaneous. And because of that, we open this up to chatting. 
We open this up to socialization. We actually want to draw people out and know a little bit more about their lives Mm -hmm. to make sure we're not missing any side effects or anything else. Right. And people love that. You know, they they like to tell their stories. They like to socialize. So that's an important thing. And then finally, you know, there's intellectual curiosity. And some people like to be part of research to expand their knowledge or test their knowledge Mm -hmm. or because they just fascinated by something and they may not completely understand it, but they want to be part of that knowledge expansion, both from the standpoint of society and from them being a little bit more comfortable about talking about it or or, or being able to really um, have an intense feeling of what it is that they're involved with. Right. So maybe give us an anecdote or two that falls into that category in your experience. So I've seen a lot of patients working in neurointensive care. You know, we have a lot of devastating strokes that I've seen and, you know, talking to families and getting history. If a patient can't communicate, a lot of them say, well, maybe they're forgetful and don't take their medication or they can't afford it. And I think that's where I'm seeing a a niche for, for research to be started, you know, in the hospital is educating and saying, you know, this devastating injury could have been prevented. Um, and then to change gears with my, Um, current research I'm helping with at JCCR, the patients like to chat. They're mostly retired, like I said, and, you know, uh, in a normal physician's office at a visit, they don't have time to share everything about themselves, but that's what I'm there to do. I'm there to collect as much data as I can about the person and they're happy to share. And that's attention that they get. Um, Maybe they're widowed or a widower and, you know, this is their social interaction. A lot of them say, this is the most exciting thing I'm doing today. And I am not in a rush. I'm, you know, happy to be here with you. So it's a nice change in contrast to what I do in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some, and there's obviously situations that cross different value propositions. So I was just Mm -hmm. thinking about relief of suffering and Mm -hmm. legacy. So you have somebody who is uh, getting up in the years and they're worried about their memory, for example. Correct. So their suffering is not knowing if they have a disease or if this is the normal sort of loss of memory as you get older Mm -hmm. or, you know, sometimes the forgetfulness that happens as you get older, which may be more concentration than actual memory. But nonetheless, people are nervous about that. Right. So they can come in, they can be evaluated and uh, we may be able to relieve their suffering by saying, Hey, you don't have a problem. Right. So that's a relief of suffering. On the other hand, if we detect a little bit of a problem, we can give them hope. Right. And because there tends to be a genetic component to some of these things, Mm -hmm. if we figure something out, then that's a legacy effect that they can pass along. Mm -hmm. Or the legacy effect is to uh, talk to their brother and sisters who are younger than they are about getting screened earlier or you're making sure their kids are aware of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So all these things fall into play. Um, Yeah. As a cardiologist, you made a great point is that often we identify people in the hospital And one of the difficult things is to make that transition from hospital to outpatient research and care. Right. And so, for example, um, what I like to tell people in the hospital is that my job is to make sure that you don't go to the hospital again with another heart attack. Right. And how we're going to do that. Well, it it starts in the hospital, but Mm -hmm. it's not going to end there. Right. So tell us a little bit more about some of your experiences with that and how receptive are people? Do people kind of drop the ball once they get out of the hospital and they're relieved? You know, how, do you, how do you deal with some of those issues? I think we see a big mix because in a neuro ICU, it's a lot of strokes, um, aneurysms, tumors. So some people come in, they had no idea, they're very healthy, and their high cholesterol is hereditary. 
Um, so they take care of themselves. We have people that forget their medications and don't take them. So, you know, sometimes we see another person come in that has a repeat stroke because maybe they couldn't afford their meds or they didn't think that it would happen to them. And some of that has to do with education and socioeconomic status. So we do see a wide range of people um, that are willing and come back when do all the right things. And then some people come back because they may not trust the healthcare. They, they may not take the meds. They may not be able to afford them. So I think we mm. see a wide range of that. Any experience between likelihood of follow through if you do a research study immediately after discharge versus you're just a general patient? Honestly, I have not. Mm. I, we, I don't do a lot of research in our neuro ICU. Our surgeons do a lot, mm. but I bet you that they, you would see a higher correlation if we could start in the hospitals because then, you know, if there was a financial benefit to that, to those that can't afford it, um, I yeah. think you would see. Yeah, I would think anything that's programmatic would help people stay more engaged with the healthcare team. Mm -hmm. And it is, it is a big problem for people uh, after they leave the hospital to engage with the healthcare team for a number of reasons. Some of it is just the, the commerce or medicine. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so complicated. You don't know who you can see as an outpatient, what your copays are, right. uh, what's allowed, what's not allowed, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're in the research program, all that's taken care of. Right. So all, all that anxiety goes away and it, it becomes a, a point of connectivity with, with the healthcare system. So I'd imagine that that is something that's helpful, but to your yeah. point, it probably needs to be studied more. Agreed. Yeah. Studied more, but it's a, it's an interface that you're comfortable with. It is. Yeah. Which is, is, which is a, a, a rare gift. And I, and I thank, <laughs> thank you for that. So I'm going to ask a question, which will be a little bit of a tease for the next segment, which is that what, what can we do to reach out to people in general, like what, what is a, your opinion about what could be effective and what isn't effective and um, what, is there anything that programmatically can be done maybe? So just, just give us the brief answer and then I'm going to cut you off and go to the next section. Okay. I think this is definitely something that could be explored in the hospital. Um, if we can get some delegated staff to work on this, I think that it could really propel patients to be more compliant um, in the future and maybe less return visits. And, and how about programmatically? Have you, have you heard of any thing that maybe a private company is doing to promote this concept of reaching out into communities or anything like that? JCCR. Uh, uh, well, we have to wait to the next segment to okay. talk about that. <laughs> I'm your host, Michelle McCormick, and we want to thank Dr. Michael Corrin for his clinical and research perspective behind the science in this episode of Med Evidence: the truth behind the data. 